We're moving in a new direction, moving forward and moving beyond smoking. We are Altria, and our companies are leading the way in moving adult smokers away from cigarettes by taking action to transition millions toward potentially less harmful choices as we move from being known as a tobacco company to being recognized as a tobacco harm reduction company. Altria is moving beyond smoking. Find out how at Altria.com. University of Maryland Global Campus has more than 20 years' experience providing affordable online education to military service members and working adults. Offering low tuition, no-cost digital resources replacing most textbooks, scholarships for those who qualify, and more. Learn more at umgc.edu slash podcast. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo, and I'm here with my friend Swan. Sana, hey man, can you tr- introduce yourself? Hey Elmo, thanks for having me on. Uh yeah, so my name is Swan Sona. I am the host and founder of Intellectual Conservatism. That's a podcast, YouTube channel, and Facebook page just dedicated to uh, conserving uh, traditional intellectual thought, ranging from Thomistic to Neoplatonic uh, schools of thought, including Edmund Burke. So yeah, I'm a philosophy student at Kansas State University. I specialize in ethics and I, I more recently have gotten into theology and, you know, New Testament studies because I, I love uh, learning about, uh, you know, Jesus Christ. And um, aside from that, I've done a lot of kind of explorations into the metaphysics of God and certain issues like universalism or, you know, um, certain other theological positions. Coming from from like you know a philosophical perspective would you say that you are also a christian like art at heart right yeah like did you have the uh actually accept the gospel and in some and prayer was it shared to you how did you become a christian bro yeah i mean i was raised in a christian household and i had you know i had very good parents and that's a that's a huge blessing and my parents were very supportive of my uh, intellectual explorations into the Christian faith. And, you know, growing up, uh, I think it was about maybe, I don't know, um, 2011, 2012, or even earlier, perhaps when like a God's not dead came out and there was just this huge explosion of, uh, interest in apologetics. And I got on that train and I wrote it. And yeah, I mean, I had a period of doubt in high school where I went agnostic actually for uh, quite a bit of time because I just struggled day and night with doubts on the existence of God, on what's the point of all of this, um, and so on and so forth. And then eventually I came back to the faith. And then more recently, I actually uh, converted to Catholicism. So I went from being Baptist to being Catholic. In terms of like, you know, at the time that you were in high school, what generally, what reasons mainly were uh, 
as to why you became sort of agnostic? Was it more of like a like a need for a rational argument to you know to actually demonstrate that God exists, or more of the the failures and flaws of human religion? Yeah, I would say it's a it was a mix of both intellectual and emotional factors. So, you know, my dad is a minister. He you know, would go out to hospitals and visit with patients and, you know, his, uh, his parishioners. And I remember, um, there was one occasion where I went with him to visit this elderly woman and she was dying in bed. And I remember just, uh, you know, seeing her body and seeing how she was heaving. And I looked at the crucifix in the room cause this was a Catholic hospital. And I thought to myself, you know, how could, is God even there? Does he even care about this woman who's dying in this way? And because at the time I was actually interested in becoming an evolutionary biologist, I was also very aware of kind of like the literature on evolution, uh, what role death plays in the whole process. And then, you know, I was I was never really a young earth creationist, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I grew up believing or knowing rather, <laughs> depending on your position, I, I grew up knowing, right, that uh, the earth was just billions of years old and animals had died and suffered throughout the whole process. And then I thought to myself, wow, like, was there ever a God in the first place? You know, and that, that's kind of a weird way to put it, but, you know, looking at the history of the world and all the evil and suffering and death, um, you know, could you say that the God who created this is good in the first place? And I, I think uh, C.S. Lewis actually talked about when he was an atheist, he had the same sentiment. So I really appreciate Yeah, I, I guess that I, I did have that time in my high school too, you know, especially when you dive into philosophical questions and and it, it, it seems to me, it seemed to me though that that it's really hard to prove a specific f a belief system to especially to yourself right but for for me like how i actually accepted christianity was not really more uh less of like pure rational arguments but more actually like that i knew that the holy spirit was working in me and it if if if, if it if you just ask me you know i don't think that there's any that there's enough rational arguments for me to actually believe in God, but it for for it was more of a spiritual experience, you know, and and I I could get down to like uh, this the philosophical reasons as to how I could prove that to be true to myself, you know, but for you, like, how did you move actually return to Christianity come when you were at that you know state where emotionally and both. Uh, rationally, th there were some re reasons that you were agnostic. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, it really is. It really comes down to my desire for truth, and how I think uh, the Christian apologists and philosophers that I listened to uh, before I became agnostic, they always talked about how you know they bring up examples of when like an atheist thinker would not follow the evidence, or you could clearly tell like in their work they were being dishonest. With, for instance, like reading the scriptures, Christian philosophers and theologians about my questions. And I even reached out to William Lane Craig on uh, his Reasonable Faith website. Uh, yeah, I, I started asking some questions about like evolution and evil and suffering. Yeah, and he just ripped me apart uh, in a loving way, of course. But, you know, I just I realized, yeah, like my objections were just bonkers. They weren't they weren't very carefully thought out. They were clear. 
ways to get around the issue. And I realized too that um, a lot of my views on Christianity were still, let's say, um, not fully developed in a way or not totally aware of the tradition and just how the Christian faith is very sophisticated and rich in how it has approached various issues throughout the centuries. You know, so like issues like creation on the topic of evolution, there's actually a lot of interesting work that's been done in terms of Christian theology and philosophy, more so than, you know, typically what's given in fundamentalist circles. But anyway, um, so then I started realizing, okay, I need to get my emotions under control. Intellectually speaking, I need to reassess, you know, where I was before, because I remember Craig talked to me about, yes, yeah, one, you might need to reevaluate, like, um, what you what you think intellectually is the most important, maybe place more emphasis on this argument or this position, right? And then as time passed, you know, I started spending uh, time with more Christian philosophers and talking to them and reaching out to the best of them. And I realized that, um, yeah, Christianity, it's a very rational worldview. It makes a little sense. And, and when I started considering in total, like, you know, what worldview gives me a coherent, total picture of reality, what defends the sanctity and dignity of human life, what does it claim about the human body, what does it claim about um, our place in the world, and so on and so forth, I started realizing that there are a lot of things that just seem odd or have to be explained away, so to speak, in atheism, like, you know, um, you know, I, I really am struggling to find like a plausible atheistic theory of morality, or at least a theory of morality under atheism that doesn't imply theism in some way or some fashion. So the basic point here is that I started realizing, yeah, like, if I'm looking for a worldview that's beautiful, that's coherent, that's complete, that is um, going to not require so much, let's say, explaining away of things that seem so true and obvious and are so essential for human flourishing and civilization, like the good, like the true, like the beautiful, then I found that theism just simply has no match. And then my friendship with Coons and the few conversations that I've had with Alex Proust, they've all been very instrumental in encouraging me to see that, yeah, um, theism makes a lot of sense. How, how do you define if, or, or, you know, like how do you describe a belief system or a worldview that is as coherent or beautiful as you say? You know, like what, what, criteria specifically do you do you hold a worldview to can you talk about that more yeah there's a lot that could be said and uh yeah, one way to approach it first is by saying that i think that um something has to be beautiful because it's true right so i don't i don't know if it can be true well i mean like you know it can be true because it's beautiful right but but then that, i think that seems to sometimes put the wagon before the horse right so if a worldview is going to be uh, you know, beautiful, then we have to also know, is it true, right? And then from that truth, the beauty has to follow. Um, so one thing to consider is that worldviews are attempting to, um, I would say that they, they usually tend to offer like a grand narrative, right, on, on the data of our sense experience of the intellect. So for instance, we we think about causation. I think that's a, a, like a, a really fundamental metaphysical issue. Um, you know, even in Rob Coons's work, uh, what is it? It's the uh, realism regained. 
you know, he talks about how, you know, if you get your theory of causation right, then actually you can you can get a lot. So he in that book, he talks about teleology, mind, um, the existence of God, just from establishing them what his theory of causality is. So you can you can get a lot um, uh, if you get your if you get your theory of causation right. Uh, aside from that, uh, there are also going to be questions about um, explaining, you know, why are things the way they are? So, for instance, um, what, you know, why is there evil? Or why do we even think that there is such a thing as evil? Or wh why is there consciousness? Or is there such a thing as consciousness, right? I think that worldview is meant to explain all of the most interesting phenomena and, and unite them under a common principle or set of themes, right? So perhaps... Um, what unites all of reality is just the material world, right? And and then you got to go into what you believe, what things are composed of, and then how do you individuate one thing from another? So basically, if you want to assess the coherence of a worldview, you have to look at the total expanse of the data or as much as you can. And then you're going to have to start kind of um, do things, right? So actually deal with all the data. Um, so typically speaking, when I discuss a worldview or I'm arguing about theism with somebody, right, like, you know, I'm not a big fan of just saying, okay, here's one argument, okay, now here's the second argument, okay, now here's the third argument. Because what you really need in order to establish a theistic worldview, well, it depends too, because, um, for instance, I believe that the Dante argument is effective at establishing, you know, all of theism. So there's no gap problem because you can get all the divine properties and the existence of God included, right? But um, Usually speaking, you have to present the arguments in terms of a total synthesis or, you know, how do they all coincide or cooperate with each other to produce, right, the conclusion that God exists. So, you know, one thing that I look at then in worldview is, does it have scope, right? So can it at least, does it at least have something to say about each data point? And can it do so consistently, right? So, for instance, if you're a materialist, you know, um, let's say if you're a microphysicalist, so you believe that things can really be broken down totally and completely to their material parts and nothing more, then, you know, I'm going to expect you, if you're going to explain uh, some feature of reality, that you do so with the same general guiding principle on every level of reality. So the same consciousness, the same causation, the same with the uh, composition or individuation of objects from each other. And then the second thing then is going to be whether or not a theory uh, worldview is compelling. So this is to say, does the worldview actually, you know, uh, uh, build upon or come from some more fundamental truth that one must accept? You know, so I have a, I have a basic principle that if, if some theory of reality or some epistemology, right, basically leaves you in total skepticism or negates reason, then that's self-defeating, right? So you can't you can't have a self-defeating contradictory position. You can't use your reason to defeat reason, right? Because then that just gets into a whole mess. So then the you know when an argument is compelling, it's going to say, or a theory is compelling, it's going to say, hey, uh, let me look at your theory. Oh, we depend upon this common premise. But if we tease out this common premise, we're going to see that it actually leads to my conclusion. So uh, to cut this long answer short. You know, I found that theism had explanatory scope. It could explain each and every little detail. And, you know, and it did so in a way that was consistent and I found elegant and beautiful um, from the Neo-Aristotelian Thomas synthesis. And then when it comes to it being compelling, you know, 
the work that's been done recently on uh, on quantum theory and how neo-Aristotelian metaphysics really coincides and anticipates, um, you know, the quantum revolution that we're going through, uh, and just uh, various other arguments, for instance, uh, you know, Rob Coons and Alex Proust's argument on uh, the a priori dialectical necessity, uh, uh, yeah, the dialectical necessity of the principle of sufficient reason. I mean, those are, I think, incredible arguments that I find terribly convincing. Yeah, so it, it seems to me that, um, you know, you're looking for a worldview that actually at least supposes answers to like the biggest questions about ultimate reality right because you know if if you are going to take let's say uh, an atheist world theistic worldview they would rather take the position of being i guess agnostic to to supposed answers to questions like let's say the the problem of, of consciousness the the problem of individuation and all of that yeah but so if if christianity to you seems to have all all at least a consistent worldview you know coherent without any contradictions when it comes i guess you could do that in a in a rational way you know and but prove it at least prove it uh, logically but would you say that you could actually demonstrate it to a point that you uh, you have actual assurance that what you believe is actually true? I think it, it, personally for me, right, in my opinion, I think that uh, you, you can achieve demonstrations. And what I mean by this is not like um, axiom. Well, it depends too, but not I, I would say not like axiomatic proofs, right, or like 100% certainty, but probably, you know, something like, you know, this is so reasonable that if you deny it, then you have to really bite a huge bullet, you know. Um, you know, uh, one thing to point out or, or, or one interesting phenomenon to point out is when we look at the literature among, you know, academic atheists and Christian or theistic philosophers, uh, you know, what we find is they agree that there is a necessary part of reality. Um, I think, you know, and there, that there is a first cause, right? Um, some some atheists continue to believe that infinite regresses are possible, or you can have causal loops. For the most part, that position, or I, I don't know about for the most part, but I know that position is being abandoned by top atheist philosophers like Graham Oppie. Um So they're going to say, okay, yeah, there is a first cause, there is a necessary part of reality, right? And this first cause brings about all of reality itself. So they're they're not going to any longer say, yeah, non-being can produce being, or so on and so forth. But then there are some questions that remain, like, um, you know, if you say that this first cause is the universe or a part of the universe or, you know, a universe in a primordial form, then what excludes it from the causal principle, right? Or, you know, why not say that that thing needs to be caused as well? So, you know, it, it seems as if, at least to me, and the art in the conversations that I have with Andrew Loke, that um, the first cause needs to be separate or distinct ontologically speaking from the universe itself. Um, and I think, you know, the various Thomistic arguments that have been offered, especially Gavin Kerr's work on the Dante, Aquinas' argument, um, I think they just all demonstrate that the ultimate root of reality is going to have to be so unique and different and, and, and mysterious in some way uh, from the rest of the, of the causal order. Um, so what I would just say is that I think that it can be reasonably established, right, that, that God exists. 
But whether or not someone accepts that, that depends on all the baggage that they bring into the conversation, including myself, right? I need to assess what baggage am I bringing to the conversation. But man, like, you know, if I have to, <laughs> you know, skepticism is good. I think we need skepticism because we shouldn't accept half-baked arguments. We shouldn't accept easy answers, right? But at the same time, though, you know, there is a point where I think skepticism just becomes ridiculous. Um, and it becomes, you know, just so irrational that it, 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 there's a question on, like, is there actual intellectual integrity in the skepticism that's being offered? You know, and especially if we have a good theory of, you know, causation and metaphysics and we have this incredible, um, you know, a set of propositions we could accept that would explain reality and do so in an, an elegant way, then why wouldn't we accept it, right? Um, that seems to be a reasonable thing to do. Okay, okay. So, well, when it comes to the, you know, biting the bullet, right? For example, when you say that um, academic atheists would also bite the, bite the bullet if they were to, so, you know, to make a counter-argument against the first cause, right? But I, I would say, you know, b both sides are biting bullets, right? It, when it comes to uh, a, a, a theist claiming that... There has to be a uh, this unique entity that is that has to have the necessary characteristics to be the f actual first cause of everything. That which means that it's also excluded from having a cause, right? So when it comes to I when it comes to that, I think both sides are are on the same boat, really. When it comes to you know proving something rationally. Or, but, well, it, well, coming from from you know, if I were to uh, be a skeptic, right, and if I would look at both sides and and see if who has the better argument, well, I guess I would also side on the theist because I I am myself I'm a Christian, but I wouldn't deny the atheists or those who. Who propose a, a counter argument against the 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 you know the argument for a first cause because they actually have a point you know the, that um, if you're going to say that everything that exists or at least begins to exist has a has to have a cause then I I really see no reason why God should be could should be excluded from it. It, well, can you, I guess, like go deeper into the discussion that you had? Maybe talk about what you and Andrew Loke talked about. You know how how you arrived at the conclusion of a necessary being. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the reason why God wouldn't be uh, included in the causal principle, right? Whatever begins to exist has a cause, is because you know the argument would be that God didn't begin to exist, right? And that the first cause of reality must be a beginningless, right? So it has to have always had, uh, always been in existence. So, and the the in, the, the point here uh, that I think Andrew and I stressed in our videos was that this is a deduction, right, from, uh, from a, a set of premises. So it's not the case that we are, we are not, we're not saying, oh, there's a God-shaped hole here, so let's put God in here and say, oh yeah, he, he didn't begin to exist, right? What we're saying is, when we look at the properties or the the nature of the fir this first cause, this seems to just basically ultimately be from from the deductions, right? This basically just seems to be what we mean by God. 
um, as St. Thomas would put it. So then uh, when I say that atheists like have to bite a huge bullet, maybe a better way is to you know swallow the pill or something like that. I don't know. Uh, because what I, what I mean to say is that there are some things that they're going to have to accept in order to sustain their atheism that I think um, are untenable or just, you know, unnecessarily um, conf uh, confusing, let's say. So, for instance, uh, in Rob Kuhn's conversation with Graham Oppie, uh, you know, Rob Kuhn presents his argument for the dialectical necessity of the PSR. And the basic argument is that um, if you deny the PSR, then you have to accept it's possible that, you know, your empirical knowledge just exists uncaused and it has no relation to reality, right? Because uh, the principle of sufficient reason is dealing with uh, providing a sufficient explanation or reason for some contingent factor phenomenon. So, you know, our knowledge of the empirical world supposedly is suppose it's contingent on, you know, us actually experiencing certain things about the physical world, right? Well, if you deny the PSR, then your empirical knowledge would then possibly begin just uncaused. Right, or have no sufficient explanation or reason. Uh, and then what would happen in that case then is that you know you you there's a big question on if you could even trust your 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 empirical knowledge of uh, the external world or uh, you know uh, so on and so forth. And I remember during uh, Rob Kunz's conversation with Graham Oppie, right? And basically, you know, this is a strong PSR. This is not a weak PSR. You know, there are different versions of the PSR that seem that try to accommodate you know atheistic inclinations. Here, this is the strong version where, you know, every contingent factor proposition, you know, has an sufficient reason or explanation for why it is the case. And I remember Oppie said at the end of the conversation, you know, um, perhaps the reason, like, you know, why I can reject the PS this PSR but still be reasonable is because I just, I, I just have empirical knowledge, right? So, so I don't need the PSR that you're describing because I have empirical knowledge. And then Rob Coons responds, you know, or, or you know, and not, then Oppie kind of trails off and he says, oh, maybe that was question begging. And then Rob says, that's worse than question begging, that's foot stopping, right? And I think that was just a, such a key moment in that debate, when I re, like when, when you just see, like, yeah, I mean, you know, Rob described it as, you know, you're giving up an unnecessary hostage to skepticism. You know, if you just accept the PSR version of it, then you don't have to unnecessarily enter into this state of skepticism. But if you accept this PSR and, and avoid this unnecessary state of skepticism, then you're going to have to deal with the fact that you get to the existence of God. Yeah, I, I see. I see. I see that. Yeah. So, for example, like if you're going to be a skeptic on this side, then you have to go all in, right? And just swallow the the pill. And actually, you have to apply it to your own worldview. And and even the atheists can't escape the, I guess the 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 problems that skepticism proposes. You know, you know, especially establishing a a a. a and how do you call it like a a proper justification for anything that you actually believe right yeah yeah so like uh i don't i don't, know, I don't want to spoil too much of it but there was one part that also really stuck out uh, stuck out to me in our first uh talk uh, me and andrew so you know for instance uh we asked the question you know uh you know because oppie wants to say that the like kind of primordial universe Right in its infancy, that was the first uh, the first cause necessarily existing. Right, so that it began to exist 
in in the sense that you know like um you know t equals zero and then you have temporal succession onwards the time so i mean it began to exist but it was uncaused right so it doesn't have any further causes and um Loke asked the question well then why isn't it the case that other things pop into existence uncaused right so why is why are you only excluding it uh, or why are you only leaving out uh, or, or saying that this is a special case here because remember you know, in the Kalam, you have a deduction to a first cause that is unique in this way. Whereas in Oppie's case, he is positing, right, that the primordial universe is uh, necessary, uncaused, but began to exist. And uh, Oppie said something like, well, the reason why things don't pop into existence uncaused is because there are no tiger-shaped holes in the universe. So there are no, you know, X-shaped holes in the universe such that there, there, there's basically no room or no space, right? And then, and then Loke responded, well, if you think about, um, I think it's electromagnetic fields, right? They don't take up any space, but conceivably speaking, they could uncause, like, you know, on Oppie's view, you know, we could imagine that uncaused, um, they begin to expand or contract, right? So they, they don't take up space, but you could still have things in the physical world that, uh, that still could begin to exist uncaused. So space is not the relevant disqualification. When 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 Loke said that, I was like, yeah, I'm, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, that that's pretty devastating in my opinion. Well, I uh, when it when I guess like when Oppie said that, I I'm not sure if he was just you know like uh, t- having integrity for his uh, primordial uh, universe claim, and you know he was I guess he was also biting the bullet for for that argument, but hmm. I, I've never, I guess, like, uh, I have heard some uh, atheist philosophers, you know, and basically mostly YouTuber atheists who claim that if we can, theists can claim this necessary being to be a personal God or some sort, then why not a an impersonal God, right? How would you respond to that? Or not an, uh, but an impersonal universe, I would say. Yeah, so this is known as the gap problem in the literature. And I mean, there are various ways of approaching it. I know Rob Coons, he did a he did an excellent video with Cameron Bertuzzi on this. Uh, personally speaking, my approach to dealing with the gap problem is uh, is, is to first off, I think um, there are two things that I think I really want to establish when it comes to the gap problem, right? I want to establish that this being, this first cause, has something like a consciousness, and then the second thing I want to establish is that this being, um, let's see, that this being uh, is good, right? So we don't want a being who is personal but could potentially be bad, so that will lead to Stephen Law's evil God argument. And, like, if we have a being that's good but has no intellect, then that's just kind of weird. You know, that I, I, don't, I don't see how you put the two together. Although that might not be terribly strong, but that's just an intuition that I have. And, you know, I'm just going to run with it unless someone says, oh, you can have something that's good, so, uh, you know, I give three arguments or uh, make three points to address the gap problem, right? Um, yeah, so, how, like, uh, so I talked about um, how it would be really strange if there was something that we could say was good, morally speaking, but didn't have an intellect. So um, you got that in the recording, right? Okay, so then the three arguments that I give for dealing with the gap problem, the first is that if this first cause is not externally compelled by anything else, but it is its own, you know, it is the first cause. It is um, not moved by anything else except it moves everything else, right? 
then the 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 sufficient reason or explanation, let's say, for why it causes has to be internal to itself, right? And it appears to be the case that if if nothing is externally compelling it to do one thing or another, right? And and it is its own first cause. I mean, it is the first cause, true and proper, right? It moves. Nothing else moves it. You know, so for instance, like uh, it's not the case that its nature causes it to do certain things, right? Um, it just acts in accordance to its nature, right? So, so on and so forth. Then I would say that the explanation has to be something within the agent itself or within the cause itself, not something external to it. And and then it means then that the cause is not compelled, right, to produce an effect. So this cause is not compelled to produce its effect, and its effect must be internal to itself. The best explanation or best, I mean, like, honestly, that this sounds to me like agency, you know, or something close to it. Because if it's going to produce, you know, um, this effect, then it has to come from within itself, and it's not compelled by anything else to do so, right? And then I think the second point that I'd, uh, that I'd make growing off of that now to the second argument is that, there's there has to be proportionality between the cause and the effect, right? So the if you think about the the universe is intelligible, and our consciousness is real, and we have a we really do have this faculty of reason that can see the intelligible bits and parts of reality and see that okay, yeah, this is this there is a part of reality that reality makes sense even if it's mysterious and we don't know everything, it is intelligible. We can at least understand and approach it, right? So then. It seems to me to be the case then that the cause of the universe must also in itself be intelligible. So this is to say not that it can be fully explained by our intellects or, or you know something like that, but it, it can it's the sort of thing that can make things intelligible to an intellect, such as our own intellects, right? And if it's a sort of thing that can make reality or you know produce an effect that's intelligible to our intellects, then it appears as if, you know, it's not going to be something that doesn't have an intellect, doesn't, isn't cognizant or aware, right, or anticipating that there is going to be a thing in the universe that has an intellect like ours that can that can understand reality, right? So, so basically, um, you know, nothing external to the first cause moves it to act. It is its own, you know, reason for action. It moves itself to act. We see that the first cause has to, in some sense, be intelligible or give rise to the intelligibility of reality, right? And then I think the last argument I give is that, you know, based on my work in ethics and natural law theory, I think the best theory of ethics, or at least the best theories of ethics, depend upon teleology, uh, neo-Aristotelian metaphysics to some extent, and even the convertibility principle that being or the fulfillment of being is goodness itself. So what I'm basically saying then is that it seems to be the case that the first cause must be its own mover, right? Or it moves itself. It, it, it's not moved even by its own nature, right? It just it it is. It moves, right? And it causes everything else. It's uh it's it's internally, let's say, the source of its causal activity. Um, it is going to have to explain the intelligibility of reality, and it seems to be the case that, you know, you don't get intelligibility from non-intelligibility. You don't get consciousness from something that's not conscious, right? Examine the cause of the universe 
it has the sorts of, um, I don't know, features or attributes that are consistent with what we would call goodness. So, you know, it would, it would be the fullness of existence. It would give existence to every other thing, you know, um, it'd be subsistent being itself. So it would be because goodness and being are convertible, it would be goodness itself, so to speak. So then, yeah, there, there's a lot to discuss there, but I think personally, yeah, like I, I think that's a pretty strong argument that you have a first cause that internally moves itself like an agent that, um, uh, uh, that explains the intelligibility of the world and must itself be in some sense intelligible to produce the effect of intelligibility. And then finally, uh, it's good. So it, ha it is the exemplar or that which um, we seek when we are seeking goodness itself. So you have a cause that's good, that is an agent, and that is intelligible or intelligent, perhaps. Right, so I'm I'm not a young Earth creationist, and but I don't I'm not totally sure if that's like relevant to the the theistic arguments, right? Um, I mean, like for instance, a, a young Earth creationist probably can't use the Big Bang as evidence for uh, the beginning of the universe, and neither like I don't know, maybe the cosmic background radiation, although that implies the Big Bang. So I'm not sure uh, what young Earth. Oh, yeah. So going back to what originally made me an agnostic uh, on the issue. Yeah, I think um, what we need then is an overarching theodicy or explanation for, you know, what God is doing with the world. But also we need to think about the nature of God himself. So I think one thing to point out, right, is that if God is subsistent being itself, then he is goodness itself. And God would not be a participant in morality like us agents. So a lot of our analogies on, you know, for instance, uh, oftentimes problems of evil are framed as if we imagine like, hey, if I was God, what kind of universe would I create? You know, and I'm a morally decent person and I wouldn't create a world with a, this or that. So therefore, you know, God, if he exists, then he, you know, then he wouldn't produce a world like this. Right. And I think uh, the, the, the worry here uh, among atheists, right, is that if we begin to say that God is God's different uh, goodness is so different from ours then why not collapse all of morality into saying, like, for instance, you know, we wouldn't let a police off, we wouldn't let off a police officer, right, who had the courage, the power, uh, the ability, right, to stop a woman from being robbed, and he just watched, you know. Um, so, but if we say God can be excluded, then why not say that that police officer could be excluded, right? So we, one worries that we collapse morality. In my uh, earlier work, or the work that I'm kind of more known for, or that I've done, uh, on ethics and the existence of God, uh, what one has to realize, right, is that God is not a participant like us in morality. Everything is striving towards being like God, and God's not striving to be like God. God is God, right? So this is to say that then God doesn't have moral obligations that are generated by us. So God might have uh, moral obligations that are logically um, constricted. So for instance, you know, 
um, God is not going to uh, tell a lie, right? Because God, if he is goodness itself, then, you know, uh, he would not assert something as true and then actually intend it to be false or deceptive, right? Because then in the process, in making that assertion, he'd be introducing a contradiction, and a contradiction is just, um, you know, uh, is totally uh, in, in stark contrast to truth. So then that would be a self-defeating principle or, or, or possibility, right? Because then if you have a contradiction, then you have non-reality. You can't have being, uh, you know, map onto uh, contradictions. So I would emphasize then that God is not a moral agent like us, and then we have to take into account then that this will change significantly how the theist bears the burden of proof. So then my explanation for the evil and suffering in the world, including animal suffering, is that God has allowed um, the world to manifest varying degrees of evil and suffering, but also varying degrees of good um, for the sake that the depth of the good's victory over evil at the end will be even greater. So, for instance, uh, goodness gains a greater depth when the evil it is, um, you know, um, let's say, clashing against is greater. So, the, you know, for instance, if I show kindness to you and we're friends, then okay, yeah, that, that, you know, that's a good thing, right? But if I show kindness to someone and love, even while they're persecuting me or trying to kill me, right, or, or they've taken everything from me and yet I love them and see them as an image bearer of God, then that goodness, that love, has a, has a deeper depth to it that I think that God longs for in his creation or God wants his creation to manifest. Just as on the cross, right, when Christ was dying, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Christ is still begging for their mercy even while he's being crucified. So God appears to desire that the good reach this kind of depth, whereas in worlds where everything is perfect or the evil is not as great, then also the depth of the good does not become as great. You you necessarily lose out on that aspect of reality, that that poignant aspect of reality. So then, evil and uh, you know natural evil does play a part because it's part of the causal order. And human beings, right? We aren't separate from nature, right? So so when Adam and Eve, you know, committed the first moral evil, so to speak, they also committed the first natural evil, so to speak. Uh, in that they introduced a contradiction or distortion into the natural world and also the human uh, moral landscape because we are also right natural beings and hence natural law uh, being that theory of morality that that I would propose. Um, so this is all a long-winded way of saying that I think um, all the animal death and suffering plays a part in the ultimate narrative of the redemption of creation. And um, I've explained elsewhere in some of my eschatological work, so work on the end of the world and what, what the age to come, that it seems as if God, at least in Scripture, is going to establish a cosmic hierarchy of degrees of perfection. And the reason why there are these degrees of perfection is because the inferior member of the order magnifies the superior member of the hierarchy. So, for instance, you know... Uh, you know, if you think about how um, an animal, right, has some perfections that a human has, but then when you get higher and higher, you start seeing like, okay, so there are these degrees of perfection where the lesser member is striving towards, so to speak, what the greater member has. 
So, you know, we see that plants that survive and do well, they have, they have, they can react and respond to their environment, right? And they do so in a rational way. So for instance, a plant that needs the sun to survive, it's going to tend towards the sun. And then we see then that agents that are more rational, they start tending towards perfection. And then this is eventually St. Thomas Aquinas's fourth way on the gradations of being, revealing that there must be a perfect first member. So the point that I'm making, right, is that I think, it, it, you know, the theist is not obligated to kind of explain each and every little detail or even give an explanation that coincides with our moral theories, right, because God is beyond our moral theories. God is beyond, um, you, know, you know, being a moral participant in the cosmic arena. Um, and God, it seems, the, the theist is only obligated to provide an intelligible explanation for why God would want a world like this in the first place. And let me just add one more thing. I know this is a long answer, but, um, you know, when it comes to the creation, right, like in the book of Genesis, notice that God creates light and then he creates darkness. So God um, allows there to be privation in the beginning for the sake of one day attaining the fullness of reality that he is aimed, that he wants his creation to enjoy. So even, you know, light and dark are there in the beginning. And, you know, darkness has no positive reality. It's just the privation of light. So God seemed to have set the causal structure open to there being this eventual clash between good and evil. And even uh, St. Uh, Augustine talks about how he believed, I think the theodicy is called Ophelix Culpa, that he believed God created the world the way he did so that um, the crucifixion could happen and God could manifest his love in the person of Christ. And that this kind of love, would be the greatest kind of love to have ever existed in any of the worlds that God could have imagined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's more of a, your answer is, I guess, a very sophisticated God works in mysterious ways sort of answer, right? But yeah, I, I, I see your point, yeah? Uh, okay, uh, one other thing though, um, you know, we, we're at 46 minutes, but I want to ask you this question. And um, you, you you said that you were sort of uh, came from a Protestant family, but you moved to Catholicism, right? Um, can you tell me why? Yeah, Elma, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? Oh, dude, yeah, <laughs> nice. Okay, yeah, I used to be Baptist too. Okay, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the reason why I became Catholic is first and foremost because of my love for Christ. And it was my desire to see Christ as he is in the fullness of his historical, metaphysical, spiritual reality, right? And when I investigated Catholicism, you know, I, I immediately said, look, you're, you know, I told the people that are reaching out to me, you need to reach me through scripture. You have to show me the historical evidence. You know, I don't, I don't like these kind of weak arguments, right? And I, and for and you know it's unfortunate because a lot of Catholics, I mean, and even Catholics will say this. A lot of Catholics just don't seem aware of like why they believe what they believe. But the same can be said of many Christians. But anyway, um, when I investigated Catholicism and I looked into Palestinian Judaism and what the first century was like and where beliefs came from, right? So where did we get purgatory from? Where did we get uh, this idea that Mary was assumed into heaven? And I started looking at the scriptures again and looking at the Jewish context they were in. And I, I, you know, 
I stopped looking at the scriptures with kind of Protestant eyes, and I just said, let me look with the eyes of a historian, um, and let me be fair and charitable, right, to what's being said. I started realizing that, wait a minute, for 500 years from the point of the Reformation, we've lost so much of what was originally in Christianity, and that it was these older forms of Christianity, Catholicism and Orthodoxy, that came closer to that Palestinian Jewish reality of Christ. And I'll just say one last thing, too, about why I became Protestant. And I mean, it was because I started realizing, um, I was it during my freshman year of college, I took a class on medieval political and social thought, and the class was focused on how we got to the secular age. So how did we go from Christendom to uh, secularism? Why is like you know why did we lose Aristotelian thought? Where did the sacred? Where did this idea that God is imminently present in reality? You know where did that where did that all go? And then I, we read the book uh, A Secular Age by Charles Taylor, and his answer was the Reformation in proximity to the scientific revolution ended up destroying a lot of Christendom because there was at that moment realized in that class was that the Let's see. The, the Reformation had also, um, you know, led to this loss of what was there originally in Christianity. I remember N.T. Wright. He said something like, um, "You know, we, say that, um, yeah." And then at the end of that class, I just realized that I didn't really want to be Protestant anymore because of what it led to. Ultimately, the loss of um, uh, of so much of the past and of our history. And uh, I even thought about, too, you know, you know, N.T. Wright, he said that we are trying to read a, six, a first century document with 16th century eyes, right? Say that um, there's also been a recognition in New Testament scholarship uh, recently that um, so much of, uh, you know, our theology and our, our New Testament exegesis has been based around, um, has been based around, you know, viewing the scriptures from a medieval Reformation kind of Western perspective. But once we go back to the East and we start looking at the roots of the Christian faith, then, you know, I've noticed that um, we've had stunning concessions from like Lutheran scholars like Roger David Oss that, um, uh, that, that Peter is the successor of Christ because um, Peter is portrayed in the, in the Gospel of John as the new Joshua. So Peter could legitimately claim to be the vicar of Christ. Um, another Lutheran scholar, Oscar Coleman, uh, has you know very forcefully argued that Peter is the rock of Matthew 16, 18, and Protestants have to accept this. You know, so there's been a lot of recent work that has tried to adopt an originalist perspective on the scriptures and their historical context, and it's yielding the perspective or the uh, the position rather that. The Catholic and Orthodox, they got it right. Hmm. Yeah, but right now, like if you compare the Eastern Orthodox Church to the Catholic Church, which one would be the correct one? <laughs> yeah, Catholic. Well, you know, you know yeah. my answer to that, right? I'm Catholic, but um, I've been doing so much work on the papacy uh, in terms of uh, scriptural arguments. And then Eric Ubarra has done excellent work mm -hmm. in terms of just reading the councils and the synods because the, the, the Orthodox mm -hmm. are very concerned about tradition and councils and what they have to say. 
And when you put these two together, yeah, I just yeah. think it's game over. Actually, I've you know? been looking into <laughs> Eastern Orthodoxy, and uh, there was a time, a, a point where if there was a church here in the Philippines, I would actually convert. But to I guess there there isn't, <laughs> so that's why I keep going to, to a Baptist church. But um, you know, it was I, I guess the absolute divine simplicity that you know that got got me away from from all of from the Catholic doctrines and uh, the 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 I guess like are you also convinced of ADS? Yeah, I mean. Um... Well, in a sense, it's dogma, right, for me. But um, on on the other hand, yeah, I mean, I have not found any argument against divine simplicity that I found terribly convincing. Although that is to say, though, that there are objections that are worth answering. Um, but like you know, I think that if you accept the act potency distinction, the essence existence distinction, then it just kind of follows deductively. And you know, I, I you know, I think Mysterianism. Or the idea that, you know, there are some aspects of God that we are just not going to be able to fully comprehend, but they can be intelligible in the sense that, okay, we can get a grasp that, okay, there's no contradiction here, and this follows, but it's mysterious, right? Much like, um, you know, when quantum theory was first being discovered, um, you know, they realized, okay, it comes from true premises, but our observations are really weird, but okay, I'm going to, you know, this is science, we're going to have to run with it, right? Same with theology. Um yeah, but I mean, uh, I've, I've heard various kind of like orthodox arguments that, uh, in, uh, uh, against divine simplicity and in favor of something like, um, you know, like the essence energies distinction or whatever. And I, I don't know. I'd, they, they say something like, uh, you know, Bernard Shaw on reason and theology, he said something like um, uh, the Aquinas' five proofs, including the De or I don't know about the Deante, but he says like they're too, they're too scientific. Right, and they're not—they don't have enough mystery in them, so to speak, or something like that. I don't want to straw man him, but I'm just saying, like, you know, we have to. I feel like we should only accept mystery if it's necessary. The 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 desideratum of our reasoning should not be um, to, you know, add mysteries, right? But it should be to eliminate as many mysteries as possible, but keep the ones that perhaps need to be there, right, to make sense of everything else. Um, but yeah, when it comes to absolute divine simplicity, I don't. Yeah, it's mysterious. But don't you think yeah. that the ADS sort of contradicts, like the Trinity? I mean, the 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 doctrine of uh, the Trinity came from divine simplicity, came from that neo or that, excuse me, that Aristotelian framework, right? Um, and even like the, the doctrine of divine simplicity, when I've talked to my Muslim friends about it, you know, my Muslim friends who advocate divine simplicity, I tell them, wait, okay, um, you know that this this takes away a lot of your arguments against the Trinity, right? And they say, how? And I say, look, if God is identical to his goodness, God is identical to his love, God is identical to his intellect, let's say, right? Then I tell my Muslim friends, look, God is all these things. God is love, God is goodness, God is truth, right? Or whatever. But we know that goodness and truth and whatever, uh, and um, goodness, truth, and, um, you know, uh, intellect, or tr uh, you know, whatever, uh, these aren't, these can be individuated and be in the same single substance and be identical to that same single substance without being identical to each other. And they're like, wait a minute. And then, you know, they start realizing, oh, maybe, maybe there's something here, you know, to divine simplicity. And I think Rob Coons's work on the Trinity uh, from a divine simplicity perspective is just excellent. Yeah. Well, that just blew my mind, bro. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hmm. Yeah, that's why I, I avoid the ideas, you know. But um, yeah, okay. But in terms of uh, Trinity, right, and its coherence, I I have most of my Muslim friends actually, uh, you know, they 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 argue against the Trinity to establish, I guess, the that Christianity is basically wrong, right? That's, you know, it's the one of the crooks uh, of of the of being a Christian is to believe in the Trinity. So would you say that how would you answer their arguments against the Trinity being that it's simply contradictory, you know, like uh, one plus one plus one equals one. It, it just doesn't make sense. How how would you present your argument against it? Is it simply like a fideistic thing, or just because the Bible says so, or is it? You, do you actually can you actually argue with it from a metaphysical uh, standpoint? Yeah, there's been a lot of work that's been done on uh, the metaphysics of the Trinity. Um, some some of them are uh, more promising than others, but yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna come down on the side of classical theism on this issue. I think one thing is to begin by just kind of talking to the Muslim about, you know, their philosophical tradition and kind of appreciating like, hey, you know, a lot of our thinkers in the West were dependent upon your thinkers. And, you know, the, the work of Aristotle is, I think, quite popular among Muslims, although Plato is even more popular among, you know, um, more ancient thinkers, so to speak. But, um, right, uh, if I was to defend the Trinity... I would begin by talking, well, I'd begin by using that analogy that I talked to you about, or that example, right, of how God can have these, th be identical to these three properties, but yet these three properties are not, like, they're not interchangeable, right? They are sufficiently distinct. Um, I think the other thing that I would talk about is then just presenting the model for the Trinity. So, so Rob Coons, uh, he makes the argument that the persons of the Trinity are relational qua objects. So just to back up a little bit, I, uh, in, in one of the councils of the church, I forget which one, I think it was Nicaea or something like that, um, you know, the, the Trinity is, de the persons of the Trinity are defined as subsistent relations. And what it means to be a subsistent relation is that, you know, God in some sense is related to himself, right? So he stands in a, well, he doesn't stand in a relation, but, you know, he, he, he's related to himself in a way. And these relations are such that they are subsistent, meaning they have being or reality to them, or they are being in reality. And one of the reasons why the council worded it this way is because in Aristotelian thought, like a relation, like, you know, how I stand in relation to this microphone, right? Um, you know, it's just kind of a, uh, maybe there's some, meta, there's some being there, but like, it's not like real, right? So it's not the case that my relationship to this, um, to this, uh, this microphone is such that, you know, it, it's just like it's a whole being in and of itself, right? So the reason why the council uses subsistent relations is to get this idea across, that the relations that God has with himself are so real that they proceed or produce, so to speak, um, another being, right? So um, Rob Coons talks about how when God thinks of himself, there is God as the knower and God as the thought or the substance of the thought itself. And then this would be the word of God, right? Proceeding from God himself in his thoughts. You know, uh, people talk about how, uh, you know, God is, uh, Christ is the begotten son of God, you know, um, you know, and, and the words of an agent proceed from the agent. So that 
um, when God thinks of himself, and because God has eternally always been thinking of himself, so the Son has also eternally always existed and proceeded from the Father, right? And then the Father and the Son have this knower, known relation that produces them, or, or you know, produces, put that in uh, quotes. And then um, when the Father and the Son think of one another and love one another, right, then the knower and the known become the the beloved they both become the beloved and in that union of the beloved we produce then a new so to speak procession where we get the holy spirit because the holy spirit then is that love of god manifested so to speak in that third person of the trinity so the the argument here is that the persons of the trinity arise in what's called um i think it's relative opposition so um you know you can only quote unquote, see the persons of the Trinity once you understand God's relation to himself and then how these relations stand in relationship to one another. So that, for instance, you know, when God thinks, it's not the case that God is thinking about um, a non-existent thing or that God is, um, or God's not thinking about something that has no being, right? Or um, because God, the object of God's thought is himself and God is the fullness of reality, God's thoughts themselves have the fullness of reality. So that, that's how you start to get um, three, so to speak, divine persons who each are truly God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how about Christ's incarnation, right, of being both? Uh, how do you look at it as a Catholic? Do, do you take it, take it the same way as that God is both, uh, Christ is both, uh, fully God and fully man, and how do you see that 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 separation in in terms of how it it works for our salvation? You know, his death as necessary. Yeah, these are good. These are good questions. So I mean, like, um, you know, uh, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, you know, uh, our, our councils—they're kind of known for producing, you know, the Trinity and the hypostatic union and the incarnation. So, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, don't worry about uh, orthodoxy in this area, right? Um, whether or not we have orthodox doctrines, because we kind of made them. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, when it comes to uh, the incarnation of Christ, what's important to keep in mind is that the, we don't imagine kind of like God spatio-temporally, you know, kind of uh, going from this place, heaven, to this place, earth. Like he's traveling, so to speak physically, right? Um, rather, because God is timeless, changeless, immaterial, transcendent, nothing moves him, right? It wasn't the case that when God became incarnate, so to speak, it was God um, moving himself to become incarnate, right? A better picture of, of the incarnation is that God, you know, had already predestined, so to speak, this part of creation, to be pulled to himself such that he is not changing but creation is being changed and that as creation is being pulled to god it reaches god at this one point that is so you know unified and so incredible that this one point in which god and creation meet where creation is pulled up to god is the person of christ christ is the creation pulled into god and made one with it, with him, right? So that, you know, 
um, you know, we believe in the hypostatic union that Christ has two natures, he has two intellects, and, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, but the point then is that in terms of like the atonement or like the, the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross, what happens is that because Christ is the creation of, you know, is creation itself united and pulled into the unchanging perfect reality of God, when Christ died on the cross, he participated in our human death. He participated in our human reality of suffering and pain which are, you know, the results of sin. But in God's case, you know, Christ, because he was perfect, he died not because he sinned, but because he is the Lord of life. So Christ, as the Lord, allowed himself to die, right? He, he, he allowed himself to die so that he could enter into our human condition. And that when Christ also rose again from the dead, he also, you know, um, imparted the resurrection to creation, right? Now, now the idea then is that, you know, Adam and Eve, as our first high priest and priestess, they were, so to speak, you know, the greatest humans that existed before Christ. And the idea is that um, you can only go as far as your greatest member. So before Christ, man could only go as far as Adam did, because Adam was the greatest man. He was created perfect. He was created, you know, in grace, and yet he fell. So therefore, all men born from the line of Adam or, you know, from Adam are also destined towards not only making it as far as Adam did, which was still failure. But when Christ entered the world or when Christ, you know, when God became incarnate um, and pulled the creation to himself at this new high point, the new Adam, right? When we are substantially changed and transformed in you know in the sacraments and in accepting Christ and becoming sanctified we become engrafted or infused or united to the reality of the new Adam we become part of his body and his body becomes our body such that we can one day achieve unity with God like Christ did and this doctrine is known as the theosis or um, some people call it uh, deification or even um, or even Christosis, right? And you can find this in, I believe it's First Peter 2 or 4, or chapter 2 or 4, where it talks about how um, we are meant to become partakers in the divine nature. So even Peter talks about how we are meant to be united to God in this incredible way. Yeah, well, that's that was a really good answer, man. And, um, you know, I guess because it, we're cut off on time, I just want to ask you one last question, though. Though I did uh, have some other questions, but here's one last question, Swan, and um, I hope you could take the time to have another interview uh, someday. Um, but my question is, uh, being a Christian, bro, you know, you you. I guess you you've taken the the role for yourself of being this uh maybe taking the role for of being on 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 apologetics but mostly uh being a philosopher right and studying it deeply and uh taking the time to uh develop your own platform like the your intellectualist conservatism am I right yeah the YouTube channel yeah intellectual conservatism yeah um what's I guess what's the direction you're going for right now, you know? And um, I guess it's more of like a question of what's the meaning of of life, but specifically, what's 
what's the meaning of life for you right now? Where are you heading? What, what are you planning? You know, and um, how's your spiritual growth and where is it taking you? Yeah, so I'm interested in becoming a Dominican priest. So joining uh, the Order of St. Dominic. Um, so St. Thomas Aquinas was a member of this order. He's probably one of the most famous Dominicans to have ever lived. Uh, they make a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. So they they uh, give up personal possessions. They give up a bank account, and they live in communal life with one another. They uh, obey you know, their superiors, and they're at the service of the church and of the people. And also, um, uh, let's see, you're in chastity, of course, so we're celibate. And uh, they also have a special charism to be philosopher preachers and to spread the gospel, so they're very evangelistic. Uh, I love all of those aspects. And... You know, the religious life in Catholicism, yeah, I mean, the religious life in Catholicism is considered the greatest way of life. And the reason why is because um, Christ, when he lived on the earth, he lived a life of, you know, chastity. He was very pure and chaste and celibate. Um, he lived a life where he had very few possessions. He taught us to be able to give, to at any moment be willing to give our possessions away to the poor. Um, you know, and, and Christ taught us, taught us not to be obsessed with property. And then obedience, I mean, um, the idea of the religious life and really the Christian life in general is that you are the bride of Christ because we are the church, right? We're being married to Christ, and he is our lover. And, you know, this is a controversial example, but, you know, just as a wife is called to be obedient to her husband, so too am I called to be obedient to the headship of Christ and obedient to what he needs me to do. So, yeah, I mean, that's the life I want to live in. Um, if, if I had to articulate what my uh, what my meaning or purpose in life is, I think it would be twofold. It would be to give people justified hope. So justified hope means I'm not trying to give you hope that's just um, wishful thinking. I want to give you something rational, real, that makes sense, that has meat to it, and show you that reality is good and that there is goodness in the world and that it's real and it's something worth striving for, and the good will ultimately be, be victorious. You know, I want people to have hope in that reality because we need it. And the second thing I'd say is um, my purpose in life is to make God, uh, is to re-enchant reality and to help people see that God is here, God is present. And I want, I want to help people become children again in a way and regain their innocence and their purity and their happiness and to understand that they are loved by the Father more than they can ever imagine. And that that love, that love will transform every aspect of creation. Yeah, Swan, that was really beautiful what you just said. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really hope that you become an awesome Dominican priest, man. Uh, God bless. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, thanks, man. Bye, bro. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. We're moving in a new direction. Moving forward and moving beyond smoking. We are Altria. 
And our companies are leading the way in moving adult smokers away from cigarettes by taking action to transition millions toward potentially less harmful choices as we move from being known as a tobacco company to being recognized as a tobacco harm reduction company. Altria is moving beyond smoking. Find out how at Altria.com. It takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car, like cooking, but without the frozen dinner easy way out. eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment, so you can follow any recipe to a T. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs or a German luxury car that's as complicated as almost roulading. To cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride.